Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guests today are Adam Bentley and Adam Rafowitz from the band Arch Echo. Here goes. Adam Bentley, Adam Rafowitz, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hey, guys. You guys are starting to really get out there. I mean, I've heard heard about you guys before, obviously. I mean, Adam B., you're on Nail the Mix this month. You've been on the podcast, and I have heard of you guys in the scene, but I feel like lately it's starting to speed up, and I'm sure the Dream Theater Tour didn't hurt at all. But you guys have been around for a while, right? How long have you guys been together? I think it was like November 2017 that we kind of began. 2016. Was it 2016? Jeez. Well, we released that first single January 2017. Right, right. But yeah, it was like, I think the first ever writing session really took place in like August 2016. How long did it take before people noticed? Seems like pretty quick, but then it just kind of evened off for a while. Yeah. The first single did well, like ish. I mean, better than we expected. I don't know if I'm just speaking for myself there. And then the first album I thought, again, did way better than we thought. But it was just kind of like, we're just putting stuff out on the internet, you know? We didn't know how it would do. So it was exciting to see that it got traction. And then, yeah, it was just kind of a slow, slow burn, I'd say, after that, just playing tours. It's weird that instrumental music can do as well as it does these days. Because at least when I grew up, the whole concept of instrumental music was uh, if you want to have a really shitty career put out instrumental music <laughs> but it, I feel like that's all changed in the past like decade. Yeah for sure there are a lot of instrumental acts right now definitely doing very well and we're just kind of trying to get in on that but have our own our own thing you know I think everybody brings something very different to the band that some of these other acts don't necessarily have like not a lot of keyboardists like Joey Izzo out there. So there's kind of something for everybody, I feel like, whether you're a drummer, keyboardist, guitarist of any style, so or bassist, of course. It seems to me like you guys would be kind of considered musicians, musicians band, uh, whereas a lot of the instrumental stuff, even though it appeals to a lot of musicians, it's not as it's not as hardcore, basically. Speaking of, so both of you went to Berkeley? Yep. Yeah, we did. Uh, so that makes three of us. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can just tell that I didn't. You can just tell. Yeah, you're the cool one here. No, not at all. I'm the one that can't play. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're the one that can't play? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I saw you playing a solo on that on that thing you posted yesterday. Oh, right. Yeah, you saw that. Okay, yeah. That's only a necessity, though. I'd prefer to avoid playing anyone else's guitar solos. Yeah, but the fact that you can is especially after putting out there that you can't and then i see a live clip where you're fucking shredding people like adam and adam here is the reason there's no point me playing a guitar solo because there's people out there that can do it way better right and i'm sure you guys get that feeling as well when you hear something like alan holdsworth or you know one of those godly guitar players and you're just like yeah there's probably no point me even trying because it's kind of already been conquered that's kind of how i feel about it so that's what i mean when i say i can't play leads mm -hmm. honestly that's how i feel about it too these days the quality of lead guitar players these days is so high all i focus on now is writing cool shit because there's so many players that are just like insane it didn't used to be this way there used there all have always been great players 
But I guess when my band came out, there really weren't that many great players in the scene. There were a couple. There were a few, but not like... It wasn't like it is now, where there's just great players everywhere. And uh, you just go on Instagram Reels and you find... Every time you go on there, you'll find a new virtuoso, which is nuts. Like, back in the day, you had to, like... There were, like, five people in the entire metal scene who you could consider virtuosos. And, like, you know who some of them are, like Petrucci or Loomis or whatever. But, like, there's a whole lot of them now. And so what I'm wondering, because you guys are kind of part of that new school, I'm just wondering, where did you guys get your information from on how to practice the right stuff? A lot of it, like, was listening to players like Holdsworth, like Guthrie Govin and Greg Howe and stuff, and just being like, I want to play like that. Honestly, yeah, as far as like where to practice or the right stuff, it's kind of a complicated question because it was like any given day, like what am I working on? You know, am I transcribing a solo? And I I will say a place like Berkeley kind of helped force me to have to do that because you'd have like a straight up assignment that's like, all right, transcribe a solo and play it. But it has to be from a horn player. That helped a lot as well. And also just like my background, not being a metal player, and then being kind of thrown into progressive metal when I got at Berkeley and discovering it kind of forced me to have to improve some of my chops and work on different techniques because uh, I can't alternate pick at all. And I couldn't back then. I can't now. Like, I just can't do it. So I had to kind of be like, okay, what techniques can I use to keep up this speed? So, you know, had to practice some legato, hybrid picking, things like that to kind of compromise and Fake it till you make it, if you will. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that because we've got Tom Quayle on Riff Hard right now. And one of his opening statements was talking about how he thinks his right hand sucks. And uh, he developed his style as a way to get around that, basically. And that as a guitar player, instead of beating yourself up over the things that you just, for whatever reason, your body just won't do figure workarounds or figure other ways to achieve the the result exactly that's that's kind of my my mo you said that you weren't really a progressive metal player so what school did you come from like what was your sort of forte you know i loved back in the day like obviously a lot of us start with classic rock and stuff so it's kind of where i started started but then i really got into fusion like return to forever uh, i've seen them in concert twice And I remember the first time I saw them, it really got me into fusion playing um, because I hadn't heard much music like that. I like jam bands and stuff in the past. And I was like, this is like a jam band, but they're all really, really good. (laughs) I want to play like that. A jam band that doesn't suck. Exactly. So I kind of, uh, yeah, that and that kind of segued me into progressive metal because, you know, bands like Return to Forever, that kind of heavy fusion aren't that far removed from Prague. It's kind of like, okay, through compose it more, add some heavier guitars, and there you go. I'll give you a little background, I guess, how I got into playing metal. When I was at Berkeley, I think it was my second semester, I was kind of a funk fusion player. And I had a neighbor in the dorms who was more of a metal player. Uh, His name's Cameron Rasmussen. And he came over, he was like, hey, do you want to start a funk metal band? And I was like, okay, I've never played metal before. I don't really listen to it. Uh, this sounds interesting. And uh, the rest is kind of history from there. So came to really love the progressive style. And that band was called Sound Struggle, by the way. I mean, funk and metal are kind of go hand in hand with the rhythms. Yeah, actually, the, the right hand work in funk, if you just put it on one string, and palm mute it. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically metal. Yeah, John, the stuff you write is like super funky. It's funny because I've, uh, apart from like uh, artists like Jamiroquai, I haven't really listened to that much funk. I have this problem that I can't trust people that write happy music. Can't trust. <laughs> and funk is overtly happy. Do you know? Um, <laughs> Even when they're using minor chords, they're happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've never actually delved into the funk genre. But now that you've mentioned that, I think I'm probably going to have to delve down. Return to Forever, you say. I need to check that out. Return to Forever is amazing. Chick Corea's band and L.D. Miola. Yeah, Chick Corea, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Familiar with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, it does make sense that I should be listening to more funk. So 
that's on my list of things to do now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. I tried. <laughs> I, I tried because my friend Carter, uh, those of you on Rivard know Carter Arrington from uh, our one-on-ones, but like my friend Carter is like a funk fucking master. And uh, so I grew up watching him play it and be like, this is the most insane right-hand work I've ever seen, but I don't like this kind of music. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> You're yeah. afraid of the natural six, huh? No, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. It's, there's the feels too happy. Like, yeah, if music doesn't make me feel like there's like blood dripping down my face or something, <laughs> oh, I'm, just, wow. I'm just not into it. Man, well, you're going to hate <laughs> us. <enough>. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you guys are definitely not dark, but that's okay. You should do, you should do what music comes to you. Yeah, exactly. Just listen to our song, Muck Duck. We can't all do black metal and like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I don't think we try to be like happy, you know. We Like let's write a happy song, but it's just like something that happens. I don't think you guys come off as happy. You just don't, you're just not dark. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, yeah. Like funk is overtly happy. You know, like (laughs) (laughs) fucking party music. Yeah. Yes. The lack of distortion. Though Mr. Bungle used funk, I don't think you could say their stuff was happy at all. It's like some of the most twisted stuff out there. So there are way I guess there's ways to use funk. But yeah, like I I think that um there's nothing worse than when you can tell that a band is trying to be something that they're not. I mean, there are things worse than that. But it's very off putting, I think. And I think that music listeners can smell it the way that drug dogs can find your fentanyl stash. Especially like the metal, prog metal world. People seem to catch on. Yeah. You got to do what comes naturally to you. So I think, I think that that's really the most important thing. But uh, it's so I always find it interesting when people come to music from a standpoint that I personally kind of don't get, like, because I would never come up with that so it's interesting for me to know how they how they came to that like what about it they like i don't mean in a condescending way like i'm actually totally curious about that so that's why it's interesting to know okay so you didn't come from a metal background Mm -hmm. all right it's all coming clear to me (laughs) sure (laughs) what was it about it that made you want to play it really just the raw energy you know fusion and stuff like return to forever is a great band but it certainly doesn't have the kind of energy that you know a soaring prog band would have and just like the the guitar riffs that i wasn't really accustomed to uh they're a lot of fun to play challenging leads as well but i'd say yeah overall it's just the the raw energy and the excitement that you get when listening to a really you know high octane metal song or riff it's just the power mo power (laughs) yeah (laughs) definitely drawn to that aspect as a kid too it's just and then once you get a taste of it, like, oh, here we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Down the rabbit hole we go. Drink it up. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that because I also grew up on a lot of classic rock and grunge in my early sort of teen era. And then I was swiftly introduced to Meshuggah, funnily enough, by a funk metal band, um, of all things, called Mooley, who were a small band kind of along the lines of, say, Skindred. If you guys are familiar with that band, I don't know if, you, if they've managed to cross the pond to where you are. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not familiar, I don't think. That's one of those bands that whose name I always saw, but I uh, never heard them. So they're like reggae metal. Okay. Um, oh. Skin Dread. Um, very, very popular in the UK. Like they're third from top on the main stage of Download, just so you get an idea on how big okay. this band is in this country. So yeah, and then, um, you know, um, I got swiftly introduced to Meshuggah, and I know what you're saying about the raw energy of metal, uh, because that's definitely, I think, what I was drawn to as well, which then obviously went down rabbit holes to get more extreme, to recreate that feeling of the, you know, high-octane excitement. Also, my path was kind of similar in the fact that it didn't start with metal and then just progressed to it. But um, judging by what you said, Adam B., you kind of have been into metal for quite a while. Yeah, but I've seen this common thread with people that get into metal. It's like classic rock, like whatever your dad has. If your dad's into that sort of stuff, like Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, the intensity kind of grew because I like started developing my own taste. And I was born in 90, so like by like the late 90s, I was like, what's what's out there? That's cool. So Rage Against the Machine was an instant like, what is this? This is like magic. 
happening. So, but it wasn't like full on metal, but the energy definitely ramped up. So I was like, okay, what else is kind of like this? And then like hybrid theory when Lincoln Park oh, yeah. came out. And so I could just feel this path forming towards something. Eventually like Slipknot, like Iowa, like Kill Switch Engage's records. So then from there, it's just a friend introduced me like progressive metal. That was kind of, I think a Tesseract, like Concealing Fate. Oh, really? Damn. It was like the first thing where I was like, okay, this is, this is a whole new level of awesome. <laughs> so, and then just interested in syncopation more and more, all the more nuanced things in prog metal. The rest is history after that, I guess. Makes sense. So I want to hear more about this uh, alternate picking workaround situation because not alternate picking in this style of music is uh, kind of hard to get around it. So I'm just, I want to hear more about that. It's definitely a challenge. Well, maybe not so much for me because it kind of, Alternate picking does not come naturally to me. So if I was like, okay, I'm going to try to alternate pick a lot in this solo. So what comes naturally? Disaster. Legato and hybrid picking, basically just mixing those two techniques together. Um, the legato gives me the speed. If you mute a little bit, it almost sounds like you're picking. Um, and the hybrid picking allows me to string skip pretty easily without moving my hand uh, vertically. And that's kind of what I use to make my life easier. And maybe it's good that I utilize those techniques because playing some of these riffs that like Joey will write, um, our song Stella, that first part, the like first head, it's really fast. And on guitar, it doesn't make sense because it's a piano part. So using, you know, a lot of hybrid picking allowed me to get a lot of those weird intervals that Joey plays that, I mean, I couldn't dream of doing alternate picking. There are people that can do it, of course. But yeah, that's kind of how I've had to adapt to this style of music without alternate picking. I want to hear more about how you get the tone right for a riff when you're hybrid picking. Cause lots of the time I hear players talking about incorporating hybrid picking into the, into solos more than anything, but you don't hear about it too often for riffs. And I'm wondering, yeah, how, how do you get the tone right and how, how you make sure that it doesn't sound weak. Yeah, if it would be like a riff, I, I will say like a lot of our riffs, if I'm just playing straight up rhythms, will be just picked uh, or chugged. But yeah, the hybrid picking parts that I use, I guess I just try to pull up more and get more of a snappy tone, uh, mm -hmm. get that percussiveness. Because yeah, I do agree. It, it could be challenging if you're just hybrid picking like you would playing a solo because I try to get a nice even tone. But on the lower strings with a lot of distortion, uh, it would lose that aggressiveness. So I'd say just, yeah, really trying to get a percussiveness out of plucking much harder than I would otherwise um, is kind of how I do that. Would you say that your hybrid picking is different between soloing and more rhythmic bass stuff? I'd say a bit. Yeah, it's, it's a bit snappier, I would say, if I'm trying to get it to be a bit more percussive. When I'm soloing, I try to have a nice even tone between my legato and hybrid picking. Um, I don't want a ton of separation there. I don't want people to say, oh, he, you know, hybrid picked that note like chicken picking style. That's not really what I go for too much. Yeah, but with riffs, it's definitely more aggressive. I noticed like the tone kind of, you have to like calibrate your fingers to the tone. And if that makes sense that you're playing, like if it's like a high gain tone or mid gain tone, I'll actually be like playing and seeing like, what intensity needs to happen to make the desired sound come out. That's different for like if you're doing a high gain solo and you're hybriding than like a clean fusion tone, right? I'd imagine for you, Adam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like com using compression and, and stuff. There's some like, like there's a song Earthshine, at least the patch I have is like really compressed so that it really exaggerates that hybrid pluck sound. So you, you use the, you use your rig to help. It definitely does. It's good to practice acoustically to make sure you're actually like doing things correctly. But no, yeah, but like I mean, people use delay to help their solos sound good. Like, should use the tools available to you. So it kind of it makes sense that if you need a more even sort of output, basically compress the signal going in for sure. It works. I mean, that's also a really good hack. In your case, it sounds like it's like really great players using it to make it even more appropriate tone wise, but like also the use of compression or limiting or whatever, um, is one of the tricks that you can use when you record a solo and the player is going back and forth between legato, alternate picking, sweeping, tapping, all that stuff. And there's vastly 
different uh, volumes on all of them. Like they'll go into legato and it's like barely picking up any signal and they alternate pick and it's just, and it's basically clipping. Limiting <laughs> the DI is a good way to get around that. Oh, I haven't tried that. It's a, it, it works really, really well. Hmm. I will say though that uh, our keyboard player, I was definitely like listening to like his tone he'll use in certain passages. Like he can, he has the ability to like curve his velocities, like almost like an E kit. How you can tell like the drums to be like max velocity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you hit, you know, he can do that with certain patches. So like everything is 127 for like an intense riff. So I'll hear that and I'll be like, I want to like, match that like i know it's like borderline and we can't be 127 with every hit but it's definitely like something i want like if he didn't do that maybe i wouldn't think about it as much like the sound definitely triggers something for me to be like how do i get as close to that as possible so we sound like we're working together and there's not like notes occasionally popping out and then just falling back definitely the compression on the di for that yeah it sucks that we can't do that on guitar isn't it that we can't just like press a button on our pickups and everything sounds good <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> or just move one note in midi our guitar midi <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's one of those things where i think it's not just like you put compression on and it sounds great you have to know how to set it you have to set it exactly right for what you're going to be doing it definitely is kind of a life changer when it comes to dealing with DIs. Interesting. Getting them as even as you need for this kind of music. Yeah, I've actually never compressed my DIs. I'm a simple man. You just do that raw practice. But I'll have to give that a go. Yeah, there's that method too. I just play it 5,000 <laughs> times until I'm satisfied, I guess. It's like when drummers don't know triggers exist so they practice to be even. That's exactly what Mike did. Oh, yeah. Oh, from your band? Yeah, it's exactly what Mike did. Yeah, yeah, Mike just didn't know what a trigger was until after Periphery 2, I think. Oh, okay. Wow. So when he heard Periphery 1, he was like, uh, I need to be that consistent. And then did basically what you were doing with the 127 <laughs> keyboard thing, trying to emulate that. But Mike did that with the triggers on the on the drums of Periphery 1. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, that like that lack of knowledge in certain areas of the sound spectrum when you're learning is actually quite helpful in the progression of the instrument for us. Um, in my opinion, I've seen it happen so many times, especially from that sort of era of 2009 to 2012, where the, the lack of understanding of the, of, of what was going on with the production just made musicians try harder to recreate that sound. Um, and Mike isn't the only one I've seen it from a lot of other people too. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that's Alex Rudinger as well. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm almost positive that he told me that. He learned stuff that he didn't know was edited, basically. <laughs> he, he didn't know it was sampled or edited. He just thought that that's what you have to do. So he did it. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is the new standard. The ignorance is bliss sort of thing. Exactly, that, yeah. Like, uh, I didn't understand guitar tone. It's kind of related. So I'd like, I had a line six spider and I would be like, how did the like Lincoln Park get that tone. Like it's so good. Like that, what spider are they using? They must be using the next generation. Or, must be on the super <laughs> insane <laughs> setting. I'm just like super ignorant basically. So I'd like be playing around with it and then I'd, I'd play like differently. I'd pick harder. I'd be very aggressive with it. And then I think that actually ultimately affected my learning curve with guitar tone and like what I'm inputting. And as soon as I got like things that can actually sound good, that's really interesting, isn't it? To put yourself through hell with a Lion 6 spider. Yeah, it was like a training <laughs> training wheels. You just said ignorance is bliss. That doesn't sound like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, looking back, I'm like, how did I go through that journey? For sure. Once you're like, exposed to actual amps and like amp sims that actually sound like amps relatively. I'm like, oh my God. Hey, I think the spider gets a lot of hate. I think that... Oh, it sure does. Yeah, but <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and, you know, nothing like that existed. It was like I, I started on a Marshall G10 combo, which had three knobs on the front, right? And it costs roughly the same price as one of the smaller spiders at the time. And I think that having something like the spider was actually good for, for what you described. It actually allowed you to explore all these different sounds, which I didn't get the luxury of doing when I started learning guitar. Cause it was like, Oh, you need to buy this pedal to do flanger. And it's like, well, I'm 13 years old and I've got no fucking money 
So I don't know what flanger is. <laughs> <laughs> the new spiders are actually really sick. Like they have like 150. It's like a modeling amp now. Yeah, it's crazy. You can get all sorts of insane tones. I used to teach at Guitar Center a little bit, you know, in my glory days. Teaching funk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, by glory days, I mean like two years ago. But but yeah, those amps are a lot of fun. I'd have fun with kids who like didn't want to actually play. And I would just be like, hey, let me show you these cool, fun sounds. Maybe then you'll play a G chord. (laughs) Uh, They still wouldn't. But yeah, it sounds decent. You'd get to practice tweaking an amp. Yeah, exactly. I got over the idea that Sims and modelers suck. Thanks to Meshuggah, actually, because I knew that they were they were touring around with pods and still sounded better than everybody. So I was just thinking, okay, so clearly, so everyone who says that they suck doesn't know what they're talking about. They just suck. Yeah, that was actually kind of similar for me. I got the first, you know, the Pod Pro 1.0 back in the early 2000s. And I could, it took me at least six years to get a usable sound out of it. But I think that that learning curve of actually practicing as a guitar player, like like you did, Adam B, like you would pick harder, pick softer, constantly trying to play around until it sounded like a tone that you wanted. I think that process was so valuable to a lot of guitar players in that period of time. It definitely was for me. It meant that I focused more on my actual playing rather than just buying another amp to see if that's going to fix the problem, which obviously it never does. Uh, let me clarify something kind of based on what you're saying. So when I was talking about limiting or compressing a DI, like there's a use for that when you're trying to rescue something that's horribly played. But in the context that we're talking about here, like the player has to already be like 90% there or totally like in the ballpark for what the desired outcome is. And then the, you know, the compression or the limiting is the same thing as making the right amp choice. It's just, you make, you choose the right gear, or you create the right patch or whatever uh, t- to help achieve the outcome. But if the playing's not there, it doesn't matter. So I just, I wanted to clarify that this is all within the, under the umbrella of you have to play it the right way in order for the effect or the processing to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, compression evens out everything, including your mistakes. Yes, exactly. Noise control, muting, all those things. I think the like insane mode in line six actually helped with that too. It's like so noisy that I'd be like, I just accepted that's how all I am. So they're just so noisy. And so I'd just <laughs> be like, I'd be playing as controlled and noiseless as I can, especially if I like mic'd it. Or whatever went through some like garage band thing. I'd be like, all right, reduce noise. And then I didn't, gates were discovered, or for me anyway. I was like, oh, okay. These think there's things that can help. That's awesome. Let's talk about what you did to reduce noise before you discovered gates. It was really just attentiveness of left and right hand and like when they have the opportunity to mute. And yeah, it was just, and then I guess using like the flesh of like the end of your right hand to like, be strategically muting the strings you're not playing. I mean, I'd play a lot of like metal stuff, so it'd be like drop tuning all the wound strings, you know, playing chords there. So I'd be like constantly building the habit of muting the the unwound strings so you'd reduce the noise there. And then like if you're fretting with like just a couple of fingers, you use the rest of your fingers on your left hand, you know, to just mute out everything else. And, and just that partnership with the two hands slowly became this habit. We just had Rich Shaw from Cradle of Filth on Riff Hard, and he has a whole section on that, on muting properly. It's so, so important because so many people just think of muting as like palm muting, but they don't think of it as something that involves both hands and is more, it's more about control of the things that will get in the way than actually creating a tone it's more about like uh, harm reduction. It's quite interesting because I, I find, including myself here, I want to include myself in this, that a lot of guitar players don't generally think about that aspect of the instrument until realistically, till they start recording themselves. So was that kind of a tipping point for you, Adam, when to understand that kind of stuff on the guitar? Was it when you started miking up your Line 6 Spider that you were like, oh, all this noise, how do we get rid of this? Because I know that's what it was for me. Yeah, that's a that's 
magnifies it even more. There's like a period where I try to address it even when I just would have it like turned up loud and it's just shooting back at me. But then, yeah, as soon as the mics, I just always looked at it as like, imagine just putting an ear like suddenly an inch away from the cone. It's like, you're going to hear a lot more more nastiness. So you were actively thinking about this before you even started recording yourself. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Well, I mean, it makes sense that like the a person who went on to become a professional producer mixer would have been thinking about tone before, you know, kind of makes sense. I definitely had this weird like attraction to that aspect of it. Like, why is the tone clean? Things that people that played guitar, people just wanted to like jam. All my friends in high school, they just wanted to play and that's what they focused on. And I'd be like, no, but like, how is this record sounding this way? Like, why is that tone like so in tune and clean and like all those things? So my head just drifted that way instead of practicing like aggressively every day. Yeah, I do think, I know that Brown, you're going to disagree with me, but I do think that there's a place in the studio for muting your guitar with, you know, tape and all that stuff in order to get rid of, especially things that you can't mute with your hands, like the springs vibrating. Anyone who's recorded a DI with springs that are ringing knows what that pain is like to try to deal with. So that and, you know, the other noisemakers, it does help to do what you can about those. And also, you know, muting strings that you're not using just if you're recording a single string riff or something like that. But again, it's like if the player isn't good and isn't already good at muting, there's only so far that those things are going to go. Like it's still not going to sound great. Like it, it can help a shitty player sound less terrible, but it's not going to make someone sound great. The only thing that's going to make someone sound great is how they play something. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, you got to do it live anyway. So yeah, like if I'm tracking a just a tapping part that I need to get like pristine so it cuts through the mix, sure, I might like mute some of the strings. But if I can't do it live and it sounds like shit, what's the point? That's the ultimate goal, at least for us. So yeah, I, I have no problem with that either. No shame. Yeah, we're it's always going to be live with us. So everything we write, it's like, well, be ready to suffer the consequences yep. of, of the part that you write or the arrangement we, you make. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that um, AI was just talking then about muting or taping up the strings that you're not using. And that is a problem um, when you use all of them for nearly every riff, which I'm sure you guys do to a degree as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I agree totally uh, with uh, muting what parts of the guitar you can't obviously get rid of with your hands there are certain points the guitar just makes noise but the the parts that um, Adam B was just talking about then was very very specific and it makes sense that you did focus on that stuff because I think that every guitar player has to it's just interesting that it happened before you even started recording it's quite unique because a lot of players wouldn't hear that stuff that's why I was so interested in it because I didn't focus on it until I heard myself back yeah uh, I guess when there's like riffs coming out and they're like staccato-y like there's just the fascination with that for me like in the early and mid 2000s I'm like how are they doing that like again it's just the I keep reciting that like how 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 (laughs) so I just practice it and try to emulate it I'm curious how it actually sounded if I like mic'd up that practice session I was doing (laughs) and I'm like convinced that it's working I wonder if you've got any of those old recording sessions still Maybe. I mean, it's so many laptops ago. Like, <laughs> garage band. The amount of times that I raised off hard drives just to add in a different um, drum sample pack. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know about you. I was bad at like archiving things. Like I wasn't like big on external hard drives in like my teenage years. So it would have been cool, like going down memory lane. You got a fire SoundCloud, Adam? Yeah. Yeah, dude, for sure. Oh, dude, I, I have an incriminating SoundCloud. I won't tell you the name of it, though. From the, I think right when it started, just all these horrible sounding riffs. I found it the other day. I'm like, oh, Jesus. I'm going to I'm gonna find it later. I'm going to have a listen. My SoundCloud's horrible. I have two songs on it. One of them is about Paul Bunyan. When's it from? <laughs> oh, God. 12 years ago, maybe? 13 years ago? Okay, that's a long time, isn't it? I think everyone has that. Or if they get into like serious like writing and recording, there's that beginning phase 
that you never ever want to revisit. Yeah, that definitely happened to me, but it happened on the Meshuggah Forum and the Harmony Central Forums. Oh, so it's immortalized. It's immortalized into something. Hopefully the links don't work anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So how did it, what, you posted them there? Yeah, yeah, just post on SoundCloud or what was the other one? What was the one that Misha was on where the bulb demos? SoundClick, I want to say. SoundClick, that was it. Yeah, so around the sort of 2005 to 2010, um, you can find some some goods, like if it was Akal or Misha, some really good demos from that period and then then some really bad ones from me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting hearing the shitty original demos from people that went on to get better. I like to hear those and then compare them against the shitty demos I hear now, you know, because when you hear a really, really bad demo, obviously you're going to think it sucks, but at the same time, you got to remember that everybody sucked at some point. So it's interesting to me to hear those things from players that got good to to hear if I can tell that they're going to get good. And oftentimes you can tell that they're going to get good. Like there's something about it that is still better than just a shitty demo, but like they don't have everything figured out and it doesn't totally, totally suck. Or you can tell that there's some talent there from what I've noticed. That makes sense for sure. I'd have to revisit (laughs) now. And I'm curious. You might find a really good riff. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) that would be an amazing twist for sure. (laughs) I think, uh, Focusing on the performance aspect was super important because it was, it was more about like tweaking tones at that point. So I'd always try to be like everything's in time. I didn't, I wasn't savvy at editing guitars yet, so I would be constantly just getting that, just re-recording the whole passage, just trying to nail it, and then I'll try to mix it after that and be like, okay. And then I just realized I'm horrible at dialing in amps. Okay, let's work on that. You know. So it's cool to like tackle like one aspect of it at a time. Because sometimes if you just like do this whole thing and you're like, what's wrong with this production or mix? There could be so many variables that could be, you know, attributing to that. So it definitely helped for me. Well, yeah, if the playing is great and the tone is great in the hands uh, and it still sounds like shit, then uh, you know that it's you as an engineer, basically fucking fucking it up. (laughs) For sure. Touching on what you said about hearing someone's demo today, like it's impossible not to be like humble humbled by like listening to your own crappy original demos so like i've always been like not very judgmental when i hear someone in fact i think people's demos are like better the gear's gotten better for sure but it's also just i think people's attentiveness i mean i don't go like scouring the internet for demos but i'll just hear someone like post a thing on a forum randomly like oh like first or second attempt at a thing i'm like this is like years ahead of like something i've done like the the ear for detail and stuff so i'll see a lot of cool stuff happening with these like beginners or up and comers or whatever. I was just going to say, it's probably a lot of the like flow of information these days, just between people on social media, for example, it's not like these kind of deep in the internet forums talking about mixing. It's like way more of an open discussion. So maybe that's helped to accelerate a lot of people's knowledge and abilities. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Yeah. The internet has definitely helped people get better. And I definitely think that the bar has been raised for musicianship for sure. Back to the hybrid picking thing. Like, it seems to me like hybrid picking is just now something that metal players that want to get good do. Like, I just think that that's part of the part of the repertoire now is hybrid picking. And it wasn't for the longest time. I think this is like a relatively new thing that is just something metal players learn how to do. But it's a perfect example because uh, like the bar is getting the bar is constantly getting raised. Yeah, it's like a lot of these new techniques, you know, that Tosin's introducing as well. It's like, it's not just about alternate picking anymore. And a lot of, uh, like the progressive genre, at least, a lot of people are getting quite into fusion. Like it's moving that way um, for a lot of bands. So kind of helps players like me. So it's like, oh, I can hybrid pick and be in a metal band. Thank God. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's validation. Yeah. Brown, do you do any of that stuff? Well, hybrid picking, a couple of places on the new record, but I'm pretty bad at it. So I, I that's kind of why I pick in one direction, because that's just what I'm good at. Like, and I think that that's an important thing to learn just because you, you know, can't do a particular technique. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do X music with it. You know what I mean? 
Like if I was playing funk, I'd probably downpick all of it as well. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, what my my body was telling me to do. It wasn't because you were chasing a sound? Kind of, yeah. It was chasing a sound, but it was also, that's just what felt comfortable to me as well. Like the the alternate pick aspect where you're changing, going between either an up pick when you jump to the next string or a down pick and it's constantly changing. It seemed more like mathematics rather than actually playing to me. It's funny, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I've got a friend, his name's Beanie, and he plays in a band now called Rudimental. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that band. They're quite a large pop band, you know? And what uh, I remember Ackle from Tesseract asked him to play drums for Tesseract back in the early 2000s. And one thing he said was, is that I don't know how to play a, with a single kick pedal. There's no way I'm going to try to play with two. I think that that kind of mindset actually sort of almost triggered something when it came to playing the down picking thing. If you, you know, if you listen to a drummer, leading foot is always slightly stronger than the second foot when it comes to double kick patterns. It doesn't matter who it is. You, the moment you put them in a recording situation under a microscope, you can just immediately tell which one's the left and which one's the right foot. Slightly out of time, <laughs> slightly weaker, you know. Um, and I always felt that kind of way when it came to alternate picking for me. Whereas I could always hear the difference between the up and the down. And um, I think that that was, firstly, my body just wanted to do it. And secondly, to me, it gave me more control over what I was doing. Um, but with high, the hybrid picking stuff, yeah, there's parts where I do a bit of pop um, on the bass for this last album. Uh, there's a couple of moments on the guitars where I did it as well. Yeah, and I, I use it sparringly. So if there's if I can't get around doing it with down picking, then I'll introduce something else and practice it until I can do that thing. But I don't actively try to play the other pick styles unless I need to, if that makes sense. It is like a necessity thing. Like how Adam was saying, like Joey on the piano wrote parts and he thinks intervallically way differently. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's forcing him to have to do some drastic changes with his right hand. Yeah, exactly. That's quite interesting. Yeah, because obviously piano players have all, you know, 12 notes right within a hand reach, whereas with a guitar, it's multiple positions for the, the, the same 12 notes, especially if you want to do it in the same octave. So it's, yeah, it's if, if anything, guitar is actually a backwards instrument that doesn't really lend itself to, to being able to transcribe things from other instruments, especially the piano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. There's, yeah, the fact that you have the same exact note, not just like octave of the note, but the note itself, like in different places and stuff. Like it doesn't yeah, compute with a piano player. It's like, well, I can no, go over here and you hear the too. same sound. Mm-hmm. A guitar is set up so stupidly. <laughs> <laughs> Three and fourths, man. Oh, it's, he's Tom Quayle. Dumb instrument. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Need to copy Tom's tuning. All in fourths. Does he do the, <laughs> oh, the C and the F at the top? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should try that. Yeah. Actually, that's how he sounds so good. All right. I'll that's give the, it a shot. That's the tone right there. Yeah. <laughs> the tones in the C and the F. That's how he plays like that. <laughs> <laughs> what tuning do you guys use? Oh, we use drop A mainly or exclusively. Until this album this we're writing now, yeah. it's been exclusively drop A. So it's like just you buy a seven string and drop that B down. Okay. Uh whole step. That makes yeah. sense then for like um one of the, you know, the problems that I had when I first got seven was that I would always hit the low B. Um it just the way I was thinking about it was like everything seemed wrong. I don't know if this happened to, to you two when you first got your seven where you would read everything from the lowest string. So it would seem everything else was out. But because you've got the guitar there, the E to the E with the drop A, does it make it any easier to understand when you, you know, the fact that you already know the six string part of the seven. Whereas for me, because I tune in a weird ass tuning, it just made it a little bit awkward for me to begin with. Oh, that makes I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that it's a like a standard six string, just with this extra little thing mm-hmm. on top. five notes. Yeah, <laughs> five notes. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved drop tuning. It's the best of both worlds. It's like I'll even if I write a six string passage, or something, or it could be performed on one, I'll still just use the seven, and I'll just kind of like mute it out the seventh. I just like that it's just a like a piano with more keys, like going downward, you know, that's how I look at it. So 
um, having that muscle memory of using a six string, then like, oh, I also have the drop tuning advantage. I can do aggressive power chords now with one finger if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Or extend those fifth string chords just all the way down. You know, having it be an A, like it seems very familiar. Like having a B being the lowest string, just, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel that natural to me. But like an A, you know, it's it already is one of the lowest strings on the guitar that we had on a six. So it just feels very, uh, it's easy to comprehend, easy to ma wrap my mind around personally. Do you feel like lots of players rely too much on the low strings and don't use the full range of their guitars? Yeah, I think depending on the style, you could say that mm -hmm. for sure. It depends on what you're going for because like picking hard on the low strings, there's an aggression to that that's for certain genres that's super necessary. And it may not, the song itself may not necessitate some sort of upper range thing. But I mean, we like to utilize a lot of the strings for sure. That's just our specific taste. And just using different like chord inversions, like instead of just making it a power chord, you know, you could use first inversion on the top four strings or something and get just like a different sound that might blend better with the keyboards or anything, for example. People could experiment maybe a little more with different versions of chords. I think it's an interesting sound you can get. That and also not playing like the key of your song shouldn't be what the zero is on your lowest string <laughs> on the, all the time. As tempting I mean, it as can it is. be, but like don't do it on every song, you know. Like if you're an A, maybe you write in C sharp. Now your flat six is the zero or that's how I look at it. Or Metallica have entered the chat. <laughs> <laughs> no, makes sense. It's hard to think about that when writing metal just because that low string is such a part of the style. But I agree, it's an important thing to learn how to do. It's tough for people, I think, to wrap their heads around that is because of the way that they write on the instrument. Yeah. A big thing is if they're if the guitarist is feeling like they are missing something or they want to expand in some way, they feel that conflict. If they're very content with what they're doing, then, you know, then there's no problem. But if, yeah, if someone's like, I want to like expand what I'm doing, I'm like, then like kind of think about what Adam just said about chord voicings and also like, are you playing the zero like a lot? Or you can play the zero, but is the zero serving as like, the fourth in the scale, the flat six in the scale, or the, the flat seventh. It always gets funny when uh, the low, the open strings don't work with the key that you're in. That's when it starts becoming a little bit more complicated and difficult the faster you start to play. Because for me, the open strings often rely on giving me an opportunity to jump positions. So you'll find the open strings somewhere in that capacity a lot of the time going between like a really big elaborate extension chord inversion or whatever going um jumping from a riff from before um but i do agree with you that a lot of metal players even though the reason why it's used is because it's normally the lowest note on the guitar uh, which is obviously the most metal note um sometimes it is definitely overplayed and it should be thought about in a different way um and i'm definitely uh i definitely do the same thing i think i think it's just common with with metal styles, to be honest. I mean, I'm totally guilty of that. I'm not... Yeah, we do it all the time as well. <laughs> <laughs> we do. But it's good to be aware of it. Well, I think because so much metal is written on the instrument and not in people's heads. So much metal is written by just playing it and coming up with something cool while playing that it, it kind of, the way that the guitar sounds best or sounds easiest for the, for the style tends to be how the style is written. Whereas there's other styles of music where people write, you know, on a keyboard and then arrange it or they write it in their heads. Metal is oftentimes written sitting there playing guitar. And so people's tendencies tend to, it's like they get in the way of, it's almost like they're, they both help uh, reinforce something, but they also get in the way of getting past your tendencies and, what is the tendency for a metal player is to play open strings. So, yeah, there's some like raw, like you were saying, Adam, with raw energy in metal, there's something like raw and visceral about like just playing those. There's, there's an aggression to it that like it's hard to top. Just whamming. The temptation is always going to be there. 
like probably forever for me to be like, oh, just just play a, a big meaty like open A chord. But <laughs> now we look at it almost as like a we'll look at breakdowns, for example, even as like a reward for our like, okay, we actually like wrote a bunch of things. Let's reward ourselves by writing something like <laughs> just, just shameless. Just, yeah, shameless and heavy and just not mm. worrying about the harmony. It's more just like pick something filthy on the guitar and let's just like orchestrate around it. It's just fun. Yeah, we made people listen to our up its own ass, you know, notiness. Now, you know, kill each other. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> if people actually write stuff where um, there's a payoff, that's it's always a benefit. I, I think one of the things that makes metal boring is that it can be a constant payoff, which makes it no payoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the whole song's a breakdown. Yes. Sometimes that's great, though, as well. Sometimes you just want to listen to that as well. For how long? Uh, yeah, a couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. see bands do... Um, a band that popped in my head when you said that was Alpha Wolf, but it's like they make their songs relatively shorter. They're not writing like six-minute prog songs. So it's like, it's great like energy, and it lasts, like I think, the perfect amount of time to like fit that sort of vibe. So, But if it went on for much longer, I think, but there's an awareness of that, I think. They're, whoever's writing or producing, they're aware of like, okay, how long can we get away with this? So there's a strategy to it. How long is this interesting for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Six minutes of that would be a little rough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Must be interesting designing a set, a live set. Yeah, for sure. Th- 37 song set. <laughs> 30 set. <laughs> yeah, for three hours. Yeah, 37 song set. Oh. Sets 50 minutes. That that does uh, tie into like what we do a bit, like being aware of how long something is happening for. So something's change. Contrast is super important. And instrumental music definitely like magnifies that awareness for me because there's not something on top, like vocal, lyrical. That's a tough one. It's hard because like you don't want to, you don't want to ADD too much and not let an idea sink in, but also... How much is too much repetition? It's kind of tough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like melody, like repeating itself, almost like a vocal would. That repetition's important, but like how many times should that happen? And there's always, I mean, it feels like it's, it can be calculated, but sometimes I'll notice with us, it's like trial and error as well. You can like kind of maybe predict what might work and then, mm-hmm. and then there's and just record it. Yeah. And there's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just like embellishing upon those. Well, no, they'll play the same thing over and over and over again for like two minutes straight. And it's still awesome. I wouldn't have the balls to do that. Meshuggah do that too. It's almost like a fear of doing that for me. I'm just, I mean, me personally. Same. Playing, vamping. I'm like, are people going to hate that? What are we, a jam band? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's always a difficult one to, even with vocals, it's like how many repetitions is too many or how many is not enough. It's a real challenge every single time because obviously the reason that people want to listen to songs over and over is that there's something catchy within the song, right? Like no one's going to listen to a song unless there's something specific within it that they like the sound of and generally they'll go back to the same point. Um, you've, you know, if we take something as prog as A Change of Seasons by Dream Theater. There's a couple of moments within that 25-minute epic that always brings me back to it that I do wish there was another repeat of. So, yeah, it's like, when is it? But then would I listen to that song if there was already another repeat in it? That's the other thing, like those sections. So it's it, even with vocals, instrumentally, or, you know, as I say, with vocals, it's, it's always really difficult to navigate how many times things should repeat but if you've never repeated before in your life and you have fans there, then that's probably an indication of that they don't want repeats <laughs> as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, whereas Opeth has been doing that kind of two minute long sections sounding great since their inception, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's really hard to understand what people want. At the end of the day, I think we like to pick what we want. And I guess it seems like we want to not do that (laughs) yeah Uh, we like to repeat but embellish you know let's change the production let's like add a few more notes (laughs) just go like yeah copy and pasting is in our dna like that much 
or not just simply that. It'll be like, okay, something has to happen or I'll feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> Let's learn a new part, a new version of that part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or like even yeah. changing keys, like yeah. of the same part. It can almost feel like a different. Yeah. Different or rehar or but yeah. familiar, you know. Brown, when you're writing a monument song, uh, do you, with riffs and how long they go for, um, does it often change once vocals come into the picture? Yeah, yeah, always. Like, not drastically, but, like, there might be one repetition taken away or one added in. Cardinal Red, the chord sequence completely changed once vocals were added in. For the chorus, it borrowed from the parallel harmony between D major and D minor, which would probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the, the vocal melody sort of dictating where it could go. So yeah, things do change, but um, yeah, repetition-wise, it's normally down to to how the melody progresses within the the vocal part. Um, something that might sound a little bit boring without a vocal melody can actually add repetitions if there's some embellishments to it. Like you know, say on the third repeat, you're letting your listeners know that it's going to move after the next one or. Maybe there's like a, a slight drum fill or something like that. So yeah, it's just, it totally depends. Um, it's obviously much more difficult to do with instrumental music, in my opinion, because it takes a little bit more time. Because um, I feel like the audience mostly will connect more to a vocal than without. Generally, it's just a bigger audience, isn't it? So, but yeah, repetitions as well, playing in different keys, that's always fun. I definitely don't do that enough and I should do that more, but I've definitely done it. Adding to that, do you... Uh take away layers when the vocals come in? Actually, for this record, there was points when there was like four lead guitars, three clean guitars, the rhythm guitars, the bass, all doing something kind of different. So, and for me, I I turned them all up and I was like, huh, it all works. Nothing's really offending me. So I just told the mixing engineer to delete whatever he didn't think was appropriate. Oh, okay. So from a different set of ears, because I think that quite often... And, uh, you know, uh, this is not for everyone, but for me, I'll kind of like to hear counter melodies within the music, but sometimes I never know when it's too much information. I think a lot of musicians do suffer with that problem. So having that extra set of ears from an outside perspective, someone that hadn't heard the song before was good to to know if it was like too much was going on or if there's too many layers uh, there was only one point on the album where I thought a layer was missing. So I think that George did an excellent job in that regard because nothing he took out offended me. That's awesome. Just apart from one bit, which is actually there. It's just a little bit quiet for my tastes. Mm-hmm. Damn it, George. <laughs> I love you, George. <laughs> it's all right. It's going to be louder when we play that one live. <laughs> but um, George, what the fuck? <laughs> George. Fucking hell. I mean, obviously with an instrumental band, you get more opportunity to ha- keep those layers in. I think that when it's a vocal, though, it, I mean, guitar and vocal is from the same sonic spectrum. So, you know, it's that mid-range that dominates kind of the entire track. So I think that that kind of element needs to be thought about a little bit more with vocal music as opposed to instrumental music where, you know, as long as you've got different guitar tones, you can sort of carve your way with different melodies in the sonic spectrum, but with vocals, it dominates it so much um, that you can't really have 25 guitar parts intertwining around a vocal melody and expect it to sound good, you know? Well, it's good that you didn't, like, have to... I think people can overwrite, you know? So the fact that you were like, just do what you want, like, you weren't married to every part, you know? Some people can get really married to all their parts and be like, I want all of them. I was, I used to be married to all of stuff that I did, but then I think that I've, I I think I've had to learn to maybe not be as intense about it. You know, at the end of the day, it's, I'm one set of ears and there's 7 billion other sets of ears. So I'm probably wrong by, you know, mathematical statistics. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just, I, I allowed it just to have a little bit more freedom and I think it definitely helped. Um, and when it comes to your guys' music, is that sort of how you operate as well? Do you think about like 
what the overall consensus of everyone's opinion is and go with the sort of democratic view, so to speak. Personally, yes. Yeah. I, I try not to get too, like too attached to anything, even if it was like, you know, a solo section. It's like maybe this could be a keyboard solo, even if we had said, oh, let's do a guitar solo here. I'm like, yeah, as long as it serves the song. And just thinking about live, like what guitar parts are going to best convey what we're trying to say with this song. Yeah. And also just like be the coolest, you know, <laughs> have no shame in admitting that. Um, like what are people going to want to see us doing on the stage and here, obviously. So that kind of informs us um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. We're lucky to have members that aren't too ego like driven with thrifts or at all, really. It's like you said, I feel like everybody has that trait. It's like, you don't like that part? Okay. Yeah. Let's get rid of it. Let's make it better. Yep. Even if it does make us a little sad inside, we suck it up, you know? <laughs> that's a good, um, that's a good mindset to have. I think it's... Sometimes. Not always. Yeah. Because let's be honest, sometimes some people are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because there's some, no, there's some projects that need a, a bit of a musical dictator, I think. But some projects where it would kill it. Like it just depends on the dynamics of the project and uh, everybody's skill sets. Not everyone can have an equal voice in writing in every project. Sometimes that's like the downfall of a band. So it's important to understand the individual dynamics of the band you're in and then work best with that. And if it's a democratic process, that's cool if it works. Yeah. I don't think it was that way necessarily at first, but now there's like, at this point, there's like a trust in each other. Mm -hmm. and that we want the song to be awesome. And it's not about an individual, like, oh, I wrote this song, it's mine. It's like, no, this is our song. And we all have to really, really like it. So it's five people to please. I'd say like anybody's open to, you know, trying something different in a song or, you know, having a part removed if they're outvoted essentially. Because um, they're, you know, like you say, probably wrong if the other four <laughs> of us are like, the other four of us are like, no, nah, this part, sucks and one of us is like no it's amazing like you know we just suck it up so you you take the one that says it's amazing or do you just try and rewrite something we try and rewrite something so what happens in the event that you write something and then you go back to the original part and you think the original part's better after some perspective well then we go back to the original part and that's happened before right you've done that before totally yeah. Well, at least, you know, with like Joey and I, I've spent a lot of time at his place, like just writing for, you know, we'll sit down and write for two weeks. And we've written whole sections that we've scrapped just because we're like, nah, it's not doing it. Then go back to the original. We'll probably tweak it because there would have been a reason that we moved on from it in the first place. Yeah. Demoitis. We're definitely, <laughs> yeah, definitely not afraid to like write something and then scrap it. You just can't be. Because obviously I'm, I'm quite intrigued how the inner workings happen when it comes to having so many songwriters. Say someone is very, very strongly saying this part is incredible. Because obviously, you know, even though it's it's democratic, that person might be right mm -hmm. in the, that part might rule. So if someone is evidently really, really strongly about this one part not being scrapped, would you listen? Or would it be a case of there would be a long discussion something like that. I'd say there'd be like a discussion and an analysis of like, why do you think it's so incredible? And we definitely would, I don't know, I'll speak for myself, like try to understand. I mean, if we all feel very strongly that it's not incredible, you know, we may be wrong, but we probably would at least change the part, find out like why we don't think it's incredible and maybe find a compromise. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of not exactly that, but even yesterday there's a song like we were wrapping up like all on Zoom. I've, I felt like I was the only one that was vocal about this particular like transition. But I think eventually they all like, everybody was like thinking about it. And instead of being like, well, it's just you that thinks that. So we're moving on. They're actually like, okay, well then let's, let's take a look at it, see where you're coming from. And I think it ended up being something really cool. Yeah, it's better now. You guys like came up with ideas that made it way cooler. So yeah, just, li just listening, even if it's just one against four. Sometimes there's something there. Again, coming back to that trust we have, I think it's what it boils down to. We we trust each other's musical opinions. Like if I showed my bandmates songs or ideas and they had a criticism, I'd I'd really take it to heart as opposed to like some YouTube comment <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank 
both of you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, this yeah. is great. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah, it's been great talking to you guys. For sure. Really interesting, uh, thought-provoking discussion. So, <laughs> yeah. Likewise. Your album's great, by the way, John. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Really cool. I, I actually appreciate that because uh, when writing happens, you guys probably get this where you're writing so much music in such a short space of time. And um, I had that feeling once it was completed, is this shit? (laughs) (laughs) I can assure you it is not. And A.L. will tell you I had the same feeling when we finished the Emanuensis as well because A.L. recorded the vocals to that album. I had the exact same feeling. So that's probably the feeling that I get when something's probably good. So now I have to accept that. But yeah, glad you like the album. <laughs> yeah, trust the opposite of your gut. Yes, exactly. That's that's my that's my little uh, token from life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, dudes. Yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. Been a pleasure. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to the Rivard Podcast. We'll see you next week.